The Italian Radio Hour is sponsored by Istituto Mondo Italiano. Good evening and welcome to the Italian Radio Hour. Io sono Stefano. E io sono Viviana. Stefano, come stai stasera? Non c'è male, non c'è male. Tu come stai? Benissimo. Finalmente i primi fiorellini che iniziano a spuntare. La primavera sta arrivando, sta arrivando. Spring is almost here. Spero. It was a beautiful day today. Well, folks, we're back for another episode. And uh, again, as always, we'd like to welcome back our regular listeners. And uh, welcome any new listeners and uh, also uh, any listeners online at khbradio.com. And again, as always, please be sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook at the Italian Radio Hour. E benvenuti ai nostri ascoltatori da tutto il mondo. Grazie per essere con noi anche oggi mentre continuiamo il nostro viaggio per l'Italia e la cultura italiana. All right. And uh, so in our last episode, we had uh, Karen uh, Haid here. She is a uh, author, wrote a couple of books. Uh, one in particular interesting uh, for me was her book on Calabria, which, uh, you know, having some uh, family from the area, I'm, I'm really... Again, just kind of personal something. And you will be going also to Calabria in, in, in just Shrelag. a couple yep. of months. Se Dio ci vuole, if God wants it. So, uh, yes, I'm looking forward to that. And um, a little friendly reminder our folks that, uh, you know, if you're enjoying the kind of intro music and the closing music, that is Alabuara. And uh, they are going to be here uh, for a concert Saturday, March 19th. Uh, there are still tickets on sale, but uh, we do encourage you to hurry up and get on because there's not many left. So don't delay. Get on to istitutomondoitaliano.org and go get your tickets and see Alabuara here on March 19th. But uh, as always, the thing that most people tune in for is what I jokingly call the, fa- the phrase that pays. And uh, last week we were asked, avere la botte piena alla moglie ubriaca. Okay, well, I'm going to put you to test. So what is a botte? Is the container where we have wine, right? Sì, sì. The the keg, right? Mm. And ubriaco, you know what that means. Drunk. Right. Okay. So how can you have a full keg and drunk wife? It's almost impossible. So it's uh, it's the equivalent of having um, the expression having the cake and eat it too. Oh, so you cannot okay. have one and the other. So it's a QSA. Um, I couldn't find really the origin of it, uh, but it's very, very popular and it's always quoted among the most common um, expressions you can translate, but you should know in Italian. All right, very interesting. So we're moving on. Um, we're getting close to inviting our guests online, but first our little pubblicità. Parli italiano? Do you want to learn, improve, or master your Italian? Istituto Mondo Italiano can help. Located in the heart of Regent Square, Mondo Italiano offers small group classes and one-on-one private tutoring to help you learn Italian in no time. Visit us online at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org. Our spring semester starts on March 26, so register today. All right. Okay. Show is we, on now. We've done all the uh, pleasantries are done. We're going to introduce our guests, so please take over. Absolutely. So I'm very delighted to introduce to our audience Justine Mestichelli Medeiros and Joe Medeiros. Hello, how are you with us? Yes, we are. Oh, buongiorno. buongiorno, buonasera. Yes, you are in California, so it's still a little afternoon. It is still That's espresso fun, time fun, for fun you. Time. <laughs> so, what time does it become bonus time? Um, um, a little later, you know, six and six thirty. Oh, but oh, okay. uh, 
Anyway, just a little bit of introduction. Your biographies are amazing. We would need a couple of different shows just to go over all your productions. But Justine <laughs> is indeed the producer of the documentary Mona Lisa is Missing with her production company Midair Production. And um, in addition to the Mona Lisa is Missing, um, she has many other productions under her belt and one that I personally enjoy as well. Maybe if we have a few five extra minutes later on, we'll be able to touch upon is The Processions of Faith, the story of St. Peter's Italian Catholic Church, its parishioners and their saints. Um, very, very interesting. And as far as Joe Medeiros, I will have 22 years of creating, writing, and uh, for just one little TV show that millions of people <laughs> had seen, the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, uh, where for 17 out of the 22 years that you worked there, uh, you were the head writer. Um, yep. Welcome, welcome, welcome both. Uh, we had the pleasure to meet in 2017, where we got connected and we were able to um, um, have you premiere the Mona Lisa's Missing at Istituto Mondo Italiano, and it was a full house. Uh, they are delightful, uh, they're full of stories, and I hope that these stories are going to come out uh, during this uh, interview today. But I have to ask one little personal question before we get down to business. How long have you been married? It'll be 48 years on May 18th. And someone recently had a birthday, right? Oh, yeah, I did. Oh, it did. And February, I, <laughs> February 23rd. Indeed. So belated. Uh, yes, belated happy birthday. And there is also something else. If you ever happen to come back to Pittsburgh, which I hope you will, uh, we share a passion pinball machines. <laughs> There is indeed one arcade here in Pittsburgh. It's called Pinball Perfection, where they have the oldest and vintage pinball machines. Some um, have um, been restored. Um, some of them are just on display. And I would love to challenge you to any of those machines <laughs> anytime. <laughs> Uh, but, well, Justine is pre- she, Justine is pretty good. She uh, she beats me handily uh, uh, all the time. So. I can I can see the competitive aspect in uh you know in in Justine. So, but anyway, um, kidding aside, I think it's time for me to uh, reduce my talking so that you can tell us all about these uh, w- the most famous painting all over the world that was painted by Leonardo da Vinci at the beginning of the 1500s. We don't know exactly maybe when it was finished, but it was he did in did complete the work in France and uh, um, was donated then to King Francois I, who enjoyed the Mona Lisa in his bedroom, so that it would be the first thing that he would see in the morning and the last thing he would see at night. Um, question for you, Joe, when did you get yeah. obsessed with the Mona Lisa? Oh, well, we're talking, geez, 1976, maybe, around there. Uh, Justine had gotten me a, uh, a book about Leonardo da Vinci for Christmas, and I was always—I always loved Leonardo from the time I was a kid. I was, you know, him and Michelangelo, all the the great Italian artists. And you know, I had this book, and one one night I was just uh, thumbing through it, and I saw this little paragraph in there that said that the Mona Lisa was stolen by an Italian named Vincenzo Perugia, 
uh, who brought it to Italy. And I was just a stunt. I was amazed because, you know, I had read about Leonardo and, and watched shows about Leonardo for years and years and years. And I had never, ever uh, heard uh, that the Mona Lisa had ever been stolen. You know, why didn't I know this? You know, I was I'm kind of like a trivia buff in, in addition to a pinball, uh, you know, aficionado. But, uh, you know, it was a, a piece of uh, the painting's history that I had no idea uh, existed. So I thought, hmm, you know, I was a recent graduate from film school, and I thought, geez, you know, this little guy having this painting, you know, and, and bringing it to Italy, maybe there's a movie here. And that sort of, uh, you know, set me off on the path. And that uh, was uh, a path that you completed right away, uh, or kind of life got <laughs> in the way? You know, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, yeah, you know, I was... Uh, I was in advertising as a writer, so this was my my side dream to write the script. So, I mean, the first thing I did was to go to the library and do research. And, you know, as we show in our film, or as I say in the film, you know, back in uh, you know 1976, you actually had to leave the house to get in information. So I had to go to the library and go through all the microfiche to find the old newspapers from uh, 1911 when the painting uh, was stolen. And... Uh, no, it's, it's slow going because there wasn't a lot of information and there was no way really for me to reach out to anyone in, in France or Italy because I didn't speak the language and I didn't know where to look, first of all. So I, I compiled everything that I could from American sources and I tried to, to write my script over and over again. I had, you know, a foot high stack of, uh, you know, the, you know the page ones because I kept changing uh you know, my ideas about the film, because to tell you the truth, I didn't know that much about Perugia. There wasn't that much written about him that I had access to. And, you know, what, where was he? What was he in his family? I know he came from an Italian family. Was he the youngest son? Was he the oldest son? Did he have brothers? You know, what was his, his psychological makeup? So I had to, speaking of makeup, I had to make up things about him. And everything I made up about him or about the story just sounded phony. So I would try and try and try and throw things out, and I was constantly frustrated. So, no, I never, you know, I completed drafts of, of the uh, the script, but they were all terrible. And, you know, I was very unhappy for the longest time. And that dragged on, oh, almost 16 years. Wow. Wow, interesting. You know, I, I'm kind of curious because... So your wife gives you a book. You, you, you're, you're more passionate about, interested in the art itself, the artist, Leonardo da Vinci. And then you find out this little kind of tidbit of information and you say, hmm, that's very interesting. I never knew anything about this. 16 right. years later, you basically got a draft. Did you, at that point, like, as you're putting the script together, are you trying to find any of the people, like, you know, maybe family members or anything at that? Or are you, like you say, what was the language that just, you just couldn't go any further at that point? Well, that's it. I, I only got so far. Okay. I just want to interrupt. It says that, that uh, um, you know, your frustration with uh, not being able to write the script led you to becoming a comedy writer. And um, yeah. that's what took up the time between, you know, getting to the point of doing the, the actual documentary to where we, where we are today. <laughs> so, so right, you... I mean, after studying script writing and, uh, you know, trying to write this script, uh, I needed a break. And, uh, I took a course in comedy writing. 
because uh, I figured, you know, writing a 120-page script is really, really hard. But for me, for some reason, maybe it's because, you know, I was in advertising and, and in that business, you're supposed to come up with clever, quick, short things. So for me, uh, writing jokes was a lot easier. And I started writing jokes, and I started selling jokes, and I kind of put the whole Mona Lisa thing on the back burner uh, because I was, you know, into joke writing. And I did that for a number of years until uh, you know, I actually was able to get my material to Jay Leno, who came to Philadelphia. And I wrote up some jokes, and Justine drove it out to the box office where he was performing, and he, uh, and he called me up. And I started writing for Jay. This was in 19, <laughs> 1988. And the rest so, is history yeah, he on called, that. He called us up. We were sleeping 12 o'clock in, in, in the morning. The, the, the phone rings, and you wonder, oh, geez, who's, who's in the hospital? Who's dead by the side of the road? But, uh, but no, it was Jay, and he invited me to, uh, to write for him, and uh, that's how our relationship began. Um, so, um, you know, the 16 years have passed. This idea that is still in the back of your mind and gets at some point revisited. But I have, um, uh, this is going to be something that's going to take you to France, it's going to take you to Italy. So I would assume that also this little project, so to speak, could be quite, this endeavor, quite expensive. And I'm personally curious to find out how is this documentary, if I may ask, how was this documentary financed so that it could become a reality? Well, I wish, uh, I wish it had been financed by hitting the, the super lotto, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, go ahead, Justin, you can tell. Yeah, uh, it was self-financed. I mean, we've been very fortunate with uh, Joe's position and, uh, you know, late night television for 22 years to make a former achievable uh, salary, and we don't buy cars or jewelry or or, or we're pretty frugal people, so we had enough savings to be able to fund it ourselves. I mean, in producing the film, the the issue was Celestina uh, Perugia, who's the mother of Vincenzo, when we found her, she had a heart condition, and we had to go immediately. So the process of raising money through grants or, or, uh, or finding other producers was kind of impossible. And we're both very independent, and we really, Joe really didn't want anybody else to... Uh, uh, create the story that he needed to tell. So we dipped into our savings and uh, we financed it. And but you have to understand, it was very frugal financing. I mean, everybody that you see that participated in the production of the film were basically volunteers, people who had the same passion we did and uh, were willing to give us their time in order to help us get to get to the people we needed to in France and Italy to to make the documentary. Thank you for answering that. I mean, obviously, it was a kind of a, a personal question, but sometimes we over overlook the fact that um, things don't just magically happen. And whether it was on your end or uh, with the help of the, all the people that contributed and volunteered to to make it happen, because now you create a huge gift to us that we can we can enjoy. Um, so um, you're digging out on the information the old-fashioned way, libraries, right, uh, microfish. Right. Um, so it's really a lot of physical work. I'm sure a lot of late nights. Um, there are some scenes where Justine said, this is just too much, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Well, you know, by the time, yeah, by the time we were actually making the film, I mean, you got to remember, when I started this, I'd be going to the library, like I said, and looking at the microfiche and... Uh, 
you know, Xeroxing copies and things like that. But but by uh, 2008, so we're talking, geez, it's almost uh, 30 years since I discovered the story. It's over more than 30, 32 years since I discovered the story. And in 2008, uh, we had been making short films because the age of the, the digital uh, cameras and the digital editing and the Internet had come. So I, we were able to go out, and I was able to you know, get a, a good digital camera for a reasonable price and make some short films. And that's what Justine and I were doing in the beginning. And then one day she had an idea. She said, well, you know, you've been wanting to do this Mona Lisa film for, the, for all this time. Don't try to make it a fictional film, because that's what I wanted. I wanted it to be, you know, a Hollywood blockbuster type of film. Uh, she said, don't do that. Let's make a documentary. We're making documentaries. We know how to do that. Let's just make this documentary. And, of course, you know, we didn't realize then how much we were biting off because it was a much bigger project that, that took us a number of years. But uh, but by then we were able to uh, reach out to some of the people that I knew uh, through my connections with The Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew uh, I, I worked, I'd gone to the... Uh, the 2006 Olympics in Torino, and there I had met uh, a wonderful uh, Italian woman named uh, Letizia Rubino, who uh, lived in was from Sicily but lived in Philadelphia. Had gone to my college, uh, uh, Temple University. Uh, she was uh, you know quite a bit younger than I was, so but she was a real go getter, and and she was really uh, into the project. And once we put her on tracking down uh, the daughter of a thief who we, we had discovered online. I mean, that was really the other breakthrough you know, to making this film. It's like uh, I only had words on paper, but here was an actual person who, who knew the thief. Uh, so Letizia got in contact with her, and she was willing to talk to us. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of really uh, this thing coming to life. And it does give it uh, such a, a realistic and a human aspect to the documentary that is uh, very much appreciated by all the viewers. So um, you are just leading to uh, the meeting with Celestina Perugia, the daughter of Vincenzo Perugia, who unfortunately has um, left us. But uh, when you right. went to meet with her, can you tell us a little bit how... Um, you were introduced and accepted and whether you were trying to get more details from her or you, if you had any information you wanted to give to her instead, tell us a little bit more about Celestina and the other family members that you met. Well, I so can we had say this, that, you know, it was God, really God. difficult for us to imagine what it would be like to uh, meeting this family. But because we're both of Italian descent and now Italian citizens, we had the experience of, a, of an Italian family and what that might be like. Of course, you know, they could, we could have gotten to the front door and they could have said, go away. But this was a full-blown Italian welcome. I mean, the whole family came out, the champagne came out, the cake came out. And it, it was like meeting our grand, my, my grandmother's. Uh, and our families in the way that we would meet them in America, an Italian, you know, not, uh, not an immigrant family, but, you know, actual Italians. And it, it, it was kind of overwhelming. I think we were a few, almost an hour just being uh, in an Italian home with our Italian culture. Don't you agree, Joe? Yeah. 
you know, what you see in the film, I mean, the way, the way that I shot this film was kind of uh, trying to document everything as it happened and not like setting things up. And, you know, I, I don't like documentaries where people go, you know, knocking on the door and then the next shot is the cameras inside the house looking at the person at the front door. I mean, to me, that's all set up. I, I wanted the things to be as real as possible. So when you see in the film us walking up to Celestina's house, that was it. So it's, it's probably one of the reasons why some of it's out of focus, because, you know, I was trying to capture the moment. And she was just, just wonderful. It's if she knew us for years, and we knew her for years, and her son Silvio and her daughter Graziella and uh, their spouses, and uh, they were just, just so, so welcoming. Uh, but the thing that sort of put the threw the monkey wrench into the uh, you know my plans was that you know I get I sit down Celestina I set up the cameras and set up the lights and you know we, we call action and I tell uh, Lupizia because Celestina didn't speak English and we don't know enough Italian to uh, to converse uh, so I told. Um, uh, Letizia to say, okay, tell Celestina, tell us about your father. And the first thing that Celestina says is that her father died when she was two and she didn't really know him. So it's like, okay. Oops. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm expecting this woman to be the, uh, you know, the font of uh, knowledge for me for all these 30 some years that I wanted to know about her father. Uh, and she really, I, I actually knew more about her father and and his life in Paris than, than she did because you got to remember uh, you know this was a crime mm-hmm. and the family the Perugia family was they were a long time in Dumenza uh, you know Silvio showed us something uh, that one of their ancestors had carved in, in a, a floor and it was like Perugia uh, nine ninety nine the year nine ninety nine. So they've been in that area for a long time, and uh, the theft was very, very embarrassing uh, to uh, Perugia, to Vincenzo Perugia's parents. So consequently, uh, you know, uh, they never talked about it. Hey, obviously, so, you so, wouldn't. Uh, uh, didn't you wouldn't advertise. Hey, by the way, and uh, but there was something that um, that you mentioned in the documentary. She, growing up, Celestina was unaware. She was probably told when she was a little older, but people in the town knew that because they used the nickname Giocondina to refer to her. And in Italy, most likely you're going to hear La Mona Lisa being referred also to La Gioconda. So that was a little odd for her. It's like, where is this nickname coming from? Until the family had probably to tell her the truth. And... um, and I think it was also customary at that point that the, um, the, 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 the mother also got remarried. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, yes, Vincenzo, right, Vincenzo died uh, in 1925 on August 8th, which was his birthday. Uh, so it's kind of ironic that he's born and, and died on the same day. And actually his wife... Uh, was uh, born on the same day. And Celestina tells a story of, of her father coming home from work with some flowers and some, some cake, and she was watching him come up the, the walkway, and he died right there, dropped dead of a heart attack. So um, what was my point? <laughs> well, the point was that... Uh, the yeah, remarrying. He, um, mm-hmm. he remarried. Yeah, he remarried. Right, exactly. As, is, as was common uh, during that time. 
Uh, and you could probably tell me uh, better, uh, knowing the Italian culture uh, more than I do. I mean, that was that seems to be a thing that the the one of the brothers would step in and marry the widow, especially when there was a child involved. So the brother Ernesto, um, his younger brother, uh, married uh, his his wife, <laughs> and um, you know they were together, you know until uh, until they both died, and and Celestina. Really, always thought that uh, you know he Ernesto was her father, and Celestina's kids always thought that Ernesto was her, their grandfather. They really hardly knew anything about Vincenzo. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to continue this conversation. We just have our little commercial break. We'll be right back with you. Applying for dual citizenship? Need documents translated? Istituto Mundo Italiano provides certified translation and interpretation services in twenty different languages. Be sure to visit us at istitutomondoitaliano.org. Don't delay in getting that plumbing repair done. Call Pellucci Plumbing today for all of your plumbing needs. From trenchless sewer repair and waterline repairs and replacement, hot water tanks, sewer camera inspections to Pittsburgh potty repairs. No job is too small for Pellucci Plumbing. Owners Amy and Nick Pellucci have been in business for over 20 years. So give them a call for your next plumbing repair replacement. That's Pellucci Plumbing, 412-782-5050. That's 412-782-5050. Okay, so we're back with our story again. We have Justine Mestichelli Medeiros and Joe Medeiros, producers and writers and director of the beautiful documentary Mona Lisa is Missing. And we do have so many questions for you. So we touched a little bit about Celestina. But um, let's get a little bit into the psychic or... Who is this Vincenzo Perugia? Because you end up coming across a lot of documentation that the ordering person um, might not be aware of or get access to. So between Justine and Joe, tell us what documents or facilities or people you had to access to and uh, give us a little bit of a profile of Vincenzo um, and what could have been the reasons um the hypothesis that you had for him stealing the Mona Lisa. Okay, well, let's, oh, we need to start with like it. When it came to... Go ahead, Joe. No, I was just going to say Joe? that we need to start with the documents uh, because, um, you know, we uh, didn't want to rely on anything that had already been written. We wanted to see the original source material. And uh, through a connection that I had, uh, you know, a friend who had worked at The Tonight Show and she had moved back to France, we contacted her to see if uh, she'd be able to help us, maybe, you know, to go to some of the uh, uh, bibliotheques there, the libraries and archives to find the material. She said she wasn't able to, but she had two friends who lived in Paris, literally across the street from the Louvre. And uh, one, one of the, uh, the people was uh, Meredith and, and Stefan. And Meredith uh, lived, from, lived from, she was from Philadelphia. So we've got all these Philadelphia, Pennsylvania connections in this film. So they went across the street to the Louvre and they, <laughs> and to, to the archives in Paris. And uh, I woke up one morning and my inbox was filled with 1,500 documents. So that's where it started, where we had the French documents. And then when we went to, to Italy, uh, Letizia got us into the uh, Archivo di Stato in, in Firenze, and that's where we found more documents about Perugia and his letters. And that's what really uh, tipped the balance and really uh, 
you know, gave me the idea of, or, or the, the more grounded knowledge of who he was. Because based on what I had read, you know, from all the microfiche, the New York Times, all the American sources, uh, Perugia was, you know, was he a thief? You know, was he a crook? Was he a criminal? He, he did have a criminal record. He was arrested twice in France. Uh, and his, his trial in Italy, his, um, they, they brought up the defense, brought a psychiatrist up on the stand, and they said that Perugia was mentally deficient. He was only partially responsible for his actions. And then Perugia himself, you know, claimed, oh, I'm doing this for Italy, for patriotism. So, you know, what was he? Was he a patriot? Was he, was he a thief, a crook who was just lying? Or was he crazy? And that's one of the reasons why I never finished my script, because I was never quite able to go with any of those reasons. It didn't seem, none of them seemed right. So it wasn't until we uh, got to... Uh, find his letters where we actually got into his mind, into his psyche. And we got the psychiatrist's report, and that we had that translated as well. And between that and the psychiatrist's report and, and his letters, I was really uh, able to, we were really able to, to read between the lines and, and figure out, uh, you know, who this guy was, or at least as close to figuring it out without actually meeting him and talk to him, talking to him ourselves. So a lot of this was so this was a lot of was mostly kind of public information that you just needed to kind of find and then get translated. How does that play into anything that you were able to acquire, or getting access to locations or people that wasn't you know that easy? Not that that's easy, but you know what I mean. Well, there's a lot of uh, oh, and we were able to do that again through this kismet thing. Joe had worked with a woman that was in um, uh, that was a French native and living in France at the time, uh, and uh, we got in touch with her. And I knew from the very beginning that there was no way that we were going to get access if, if I was trying to do uh, the, the communicating. So I knew I needed to have uh, French and Italian speaking people making connections for me. So. Um, she made the connection, um, Joe, give me the name, please. <laughs> Joe, oh, uh, who am I talking about? Uh, keep talking. I'm 71 years old. And she did all the negotiating and... Uh, it's kind of crazy. We paid, uh, what, $800 for three seconds of shooting the IMP. We needed a, um, we needed to pay by the painting in the Louvre, whatever we were going to shoot. And uh, then she made the connection. She actually helped us find the cemetery where Perugia was buried. Mm -hmm. And uh, she made all those connections. And then Letizia, uh, she made all the connections in Italy with uh, the Uffizi and any place else that we needed to go. So it, it was definitely the, the circumstance where we needed people who spoke the language to get us access to all the places that we needed to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that's how that works. There's no other way around it. You're not going to go in there as an American not speaking the language and getting access to everything we needed. And, any, and, and as far as the, we came into this issue with how we were going to get the film translated, 
and uh, all the documents translated. And it, it, of course, we could not afford that on a you know an independently financed budget. So uh, we knew some. Uh, we were connected with a wonderful French woman uh, in um, in our area, and uh, she. We, we went over to see her with the, Joe went with her tape recorder and we went over to see her to show the documents and she started reading them and she was so animated, uh, unbelievably animated that we said, wait, we're, uh, Joe said, wait, we're coming back with a camera. And so that's how we got around financially of having to have the documents translated. We went to all the people that we knew, like you saw our pizza man, Nando DiStefano, in the, uh, in the film who's who just, these were people out of central casting. They read the documents live to us on camera, which gave us this, this amazing and unpredicted response to what we were seeing, what we were learning. We're learning actually live on camera. Right, Jeff? Yeah, that was uh, the, the fun part of it. Because, you know, I sort of went into this film with a shoot first first and ask questions later. I had no idea how we were going to put it together. You know, I knew that, you know, seeing Celestina, when we, when we met Celestina, you know, the film then became us going out and finding the answers, not just for me and my 32-year-old quest, but for, but for her, because she wanted to know about her father, too. So right there, that was the thrust of the film. So that was sort of like a gift. But other things uh, you were saying, you know, that were difficult to get, um, Two things, two really amazing things, really, literally fell into our lap. We were shooting in Paris with uh, Silvio Perugia, and I knew where Perugia, Vincenzo Perugia, had lived. Uh, I knew the street, and I knew the building because I had seen pictures, and we were able to find it. It's in the Temple of the Small in Paris, and we were out there shooting, and all of a sudden this woman comes out of the building, and, and she's walking up the street with her son, and she stops us, and she says, are you the German crew? And we say, German crew? No, we're, you know, American, French, Italian. Uh, oh, she goes, oh, because uh, they're coming uh, to film on Saturday uh, because I live in Vincenzo Perugia's apartment. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, what? <laughs> you know, I, that, that was like unbelievable that that happened. And you know, we made some arrangement with her to go right then and there. Uh, to uh, to film in the apartment where Perugia had stayed with the Mona Lisa. And, Who expected uh, that? Yes, and uh, I will let you... Yeah, sorry for interrupting, but you're going to no. give us more uh, details. But this was kind of very slick, very simple, non-Mission Impossible type of theft. Um, Vincenzo, Vincenzo Perugia did work there, so um, probably he just took the Mona Lisa, rolled it up, put it under his smock, and before you know, the Mona Lisa is gone. And the reason why didn't, the theft didn't did, um, get detected uh, detected right away is because as in every museum you move paintings around you take them off the wall you take pictures uh, for catalogs or maybe you're lending them to other museums so seeing that little empty spot for a day or so was normal but that not that normal after a couple of days um, so um, it looks like there are two stories that circulate around the theft. The one um, about six copies being made by the Marquise de uh, Volferino and the one about the, <laughs> the painting being stored 
on a trattoria table for two years in the town of Cadero. Is there any truth to either these stories? And if no, why not? Oh, well, there's, there's so many uh, legends and conspiracies. It's like, it's like today where, you know, conspiracies are nothing new. Uh, these conspiracies were, were back then. And uh, the one thing, uh, let me just uh, mention, uh, Viviana, is that the Prugid could not roll up the Mona Lisa because it's painted on a piece of wood, uh, a panel of, uh, of poplar. So it's, a, it's like 30 by 20. It's a big piece of wood that he had to literally carry under his arm wrapped in his, uh, his worker's smock. So but, you know, once he, he got out of there, what did he do with it? Who put him up to it? You know, the Val Fierno story uh, where uh, he was commissioned to steal a painting for this, uh, this con man to sell six forgeries. We, Justine, did tons of research in that, and I'll have her, uh, her tell you about that. She knows more uh, about that than I do. absolutely not true. Uh, you know, the writer of the story, Carl Becker, was a Hearst journalist, uh, a sensationalist journalist. He was at the end of his career, kind of down and out, and he uh, created this story about the Marquis de Valfierno. And what he did was basically what he wrote it in the Saturday Evening Post was like a beach reading magazine. And he pieced together uh, stories that he had lifted from uh, newspapers of the day, which were all inaccurate, and created this fiction about the Marquis de Valfierno. And that's a whole other story about what that name might refer to. But the story is not true. And we, I've spoken to all kinds of journalists, and I've spoken to people at the Louvre, and there's there's nothing to prove this. The six copies have never turned up. You would think in all this time it would have. So uh, it's detailed in the film uh, exactly about that story. And the story in Cadro is just incredible. I mean, <laughs> I would love to believe that story, Viviana, because it is definitely an Italian story that someone would take the painting you know, with Perugia's friends, they, they, they would take the painting back to the town where his friend lived, and, um, and then they would, they, his, they would come up with this plan to stick it on a, on a chateria table and cover it, and people ate on it for two years. Great story. They believe it. Uh, it, 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 could be, it could really be true, but we really have no primary source evidence of that story being true. Um, Great story, can't prove it. So how was Vincenzo Perugia actually, how did he get caught? What happened? And then we'll go back to the motivations once we in, okay. reintroduce Celestina. So uh, it has this painting, you know, two years have gone by. What happens next? Well, you know, he, um, my, my thought of why he held on to it for so long uh, you know, I have a couple of different theories about that, but there came a point where I guess he felt that things had quieted down enough. He was going to try to get rid of it. Uh, now, he did claim, and this was uh, sort of, we have uh, some corroboration of this, that he went to London to see one of the biggest art dealers uh, in the world at the time, uh, the Duveen brothers. And uh, he went there and he claimed that he went to ask how to return the Mona Lisa to Italy. I mean, that's what he said. I don't know that you go into an art dealer to do that as opposed to knocking on the door of the Italian 
embassy or consulate, but he went there, and they didn't take him seriously, so, so nothing happened. And then in 1913, toward the end of 1913, he started writing letters. And these were, uh, we found three of the letters in the, uh, the archives in Florence. And, and the first letter was to his local politician uh, from, from his area, basically telling him, he says, you know, I know that you're up for election. I can help you because, uh, you know, I'm a very influential man and I have the Mona Lisa and I want to return it to Italy. And if you help me, you know, I'll help you get reelected. Well, the, uh, the politician never um, responded to him. So Vincenzo started writing to art dealers. He sent a, a letter to one art dealer in Rome, basically saying, I have the Mona Lisa and I want to return it to Italy. I think that that's where it belongs. And I hope that, you know, the Italian government will see fit to reward me for this. Uh, that, that art dealer didn't respond to him. Uh, then he sent uh, to uh, Alfredo, Alfredo Getty in uh, Florence. And he said the same thing, wrote the same letter, and uh, Jerry uh, Jetty uh, responded. He wrote back to him and said, well, you, you know, if you got something, uh, bring it here to Florence and I'll take a look at it. And that's basically how he got caught. Mm-hmm. He uh, was trying to get rid of the painting. Uh, he was w- wanting to bring it to Italy, and, uh, but he was wanting to be compensated for it. So he brought it to, to Florence, and, and Alfredo Jetty went to his hotel. Uh, at the time, it was the uh, Hotel Tripoli Italia, and he brought with him the uh, director of the Uffizi Gallery. Uh, and they uh, looked at the painting and decided, hey, this looks like it's the real thing. Mm-hmm. So yep. once they uh, for sure identified it by some photos that they had, mostly of the back of the painting, because if you want to forge the front of the painting, fine. But but it's you know on a piece of wood, which is you know there, there are things on the back. There's different stamps, different markings that they knew about. A lot of so famous people. Those, yeah, a lot of famous people okay. also blamed for uh, got blamed for or at least investigated. Um, as famous as Picasso, right? Got also investigated. Yeah, there, there were a few people that got uh, uh, a few questions asked, so to speak. No, exactly. I, and, and it all comes down to, if, if I can get on this tack now, it, it all comes down to profiling, maybe prejudice, you know, against uh, certain peoples, you know, by, uh, by the officials. Um, people thought that Italians, uh, especially the ones in, who were living in Italy, they're, they're, they're a sunny, they're a musical, they, they drink, they... they They, they fight, they, 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 they love, but they're, they're not capable of a crime like this. For the French police, it was actually, it's got to be somebody like a, like a German or an Eastern European, uh, which, is, which is why that Picasso, even though he was questioned, hey, he's from Spain, the sunny, sunny Spaniard, you know, the Mediterranean peoples aren't capable of this. But, but Picasso's good friend, Um, Kostravitsky, Guillaume Kostravitsky, who is better known as a poet, poet Apollinaire, he was Polish. He was an Eastern European. Ah, he's somebody who could have masterminded this. So uh, Apollinaire was the first and only person to be arrested in Paris, in France, for the theft, and he was held for eight days. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it really comes down to uh, 
people's the, the the authorities' expectations of who committed this crime. And Nobody could <laughs> thought it could be a lowly workman like Perugia. Uh, yes, indeed, a low profile, so to speak. But uh, in the documentary, it was clear that he also uh, lived a life of being um, prejudiced against. Um, he, they had nicknames for him and so forth. While we're continuing our conversation, I want to tell our listeners that Justine and Joe have gre- graciously agreed to give away two copies of this wonderful Um, documentary The Mona Lisa is Missing two DVDs let me give you the magic number to call which is 412-825-6262 one more time 412-825-6262 Joe I want to ask you something as as you're going through this whole process I'm thinking about it took you years to write a script and it sounds like when you started actually working you sort of threw the script away which, which would make sense but as you're going and you're learning, what were some of the biggest, I want to say, surprises? For as long as you took to research this, and then when you actually get started, I mean, what were your, some like, whoa, I did not expect that. What were some of the things that you would tell people, was like, well, that, that was a bigger shock to me that I learned? Right. Well, well the script itself was, was a fictional story. So right. that right. immediately got thrown out. Because here I'm, I'm, I'm looking to find the truth. So what is the truth? I mean, one of the biggest surprises that I found was that Perugia had been hospitalized with, uh, with lead poisoning uh, because he was a painter and decorator. You know, he wasn't somebody who whitewashed walls. He, he worked in some of the best houses because his boss uh, was a Frenchman who, you know, he did chateaus and, and, and uh, mansions. Uh, so Perugia worked with him. But because back then paint was, uh, was lead-based, you work uh, around that stuff enough, and you get very ill. And Puji ended up in the hospital. And our researchers were able to actually go to the hospital and find, in Paris and find his name in the records. So right there, that was kind of uh, uh, a surprise. Mm-hmm. And then you know, digging a little into um, lead poisoning and what it does to you, we talked to lead poisoning experts who said that you know, when you're exposed to this, it sort of changes your, your brain so that you become uh, maybe less rational, more impulsive, uh, sometimes more uh, quick to anger. Uh, so I thought, well, maybe this is a smoking gun for why Perugia uh, you know, did this. Uh, but the, the real thing, the, the hands down, the, the most surprising things uh, were, were what he said in his letters, um, his letters to his family, you know, as to what really was his motivation. And that that was that was everything. That was that was the gold, the, the nugget that we actually found to really uh, help us finish the film. Um, Justine, in one of uh, the um, uh, videos that I was able to, one of your interviews, video interviews, I think you were presenting uh, the documentary in a um, film festival in in France, and uh, there is something that caught my attention um, because obviously the goal was also to go back to Celestina and trying to give her the truth. And you say that Celestina was one of those women that would have accepted um, anything. I mean, you found um, indeed her to be that type of person that would have been able to deal with anything. Um, You know, she was already pretty old. Can you tell us a little bit about probably the most crucial and maybe um, with a lot of emotions um, when um, the two of you had that conversation with Celestina and had to shoot those scenes where she um, ends up in tears? Well, I think that, you know, 
we were both very apprehensive about going there to tell her the story. And we had planned on uh, going there and speaking with her and then coming back the next day to show her. But the family uh, insisted and she insisted that we show her the, the footage of what Joe had discovered that very day. And what really impressed me the most was knowing how Italians are. I mean, either you're going to get this reaction that, no, it's not true, I don't want to hear this, or you're going to get a reaction that is um, accepting. And I was so overwhelmed by her graciousness and understanding and willing to accept the fact that her, her father had committed this crime not with the intent of greed, but with the intent of helping his family that this was going to be a way for him to provide for his family, as we saw in the film, and Joe can explain that a bit more. But this was a moment where he was doing what he did for his family. He wasn't going to take off and take the money and never see them again. He wanted to get them out of the poverty that was so prevalent in Italy because there was no work. He wanted to not have to work again because uh, of his illness and the fact that he was always being... Um, you know, ridiculed for his Italianness, he was being called macaroni, and everybody didn't think that he could possibly commit this crime. And to watch her face accepting that and and thinking to myself, boy, that is some kind of you know, graciousness and nobleness that you really don't see. She, uh, I I I was overwhelmed by it. It, it. it still overwhelms me every time I see that. And I think, boy, that's a that's a way to live. What about you, Joe? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, she, um, when we went back there, I was pretty nervous, you know, about telling her, uh, you know, what ultimately I thought would be bad news. And, you know, I, I really came to be very fond of this, of Celestina, and, uh, you know, I didn't want to hurt her. In fact, uh, you know, I was postponing. We went there, uh, I guess, the, the night that we arrived from... Uh, uh, from Milan or, or wherever we were coming from. And uh, we were talking, and I said, well, I'll come back tomorrow to, to show you the letters. And But her her son, and she said, no, let's let's do it now. So I set up my laptop and uh, set up the camera, and, and on the laptop I had the photos of the letters that we found in the archives. And then uh, her son, uh, Silvio, started reading them, and uh, there was a letter that basically laid out, you know, what what this was all about, what the Pooja's motives were. And um, it was kind of shocking to her. And then I said, you know, should we keep going? I, you know, as a filmmaker, I mean, I, you think you'd, you're supposed to have a killer instinct. It's like, okay, I, I don't care you know, what happens to this person. I want to get this on film. But I didn't feel that way. It's like mm -hmm. I was perfectly ready to stop, which would have probably killed the film. Mm -hmm. but, her, but her son said, no, 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 let's keep going. And her daughter was on board too. It's like she's got to know this. She's got this, you know, this image of her father, but she she needs to know what the truth is so that we can have some closure. And uh, and ultimately, that's what happened after we read, uh, you know, all the letters to her. Um, she said that she was happy to know. You know, it wasn't quite what she expected, but she was happy to know. Uh, and she was content, and for her, the story was closed. Uh, we have six. And, and, and she yes. said, she's off. It's closed. It's over. Yes. Yeah.
Um, so we have 60 seconds and just one question. Um, where can um, uh, where can your film be seen now? Hopefully on PBS very soon. <laughs> but very yeah, quickly. Yeah, uh, I believe it's uh, on TV, TV and, 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 TV and Pluto TV. Or you, you can uh, stream it uh, from our website uh, or download it. Or uh, if your um, uh, listeners go to, to MonaLisaMissing.com and put in the code uh, uh, Leonardo2022, uh, Leonardo uh, they, they can get a discount and free shipping. Get the DVD. Okay, wonderful. And we did have uh, phone calls. So we have Renee and Pia who have won the two DVDs. Thank you hey. very, very much. I'm going to pass it on to Stefano. The biggest thing is, uh, first of all, I want to thank you all very much. This was actually a fun episode. And, uh, you know, that sounds like a heck of a journey to go that many years. And, uh, you know, I, I hope people go out there and, and take a look at the documentary. You know, very interesting. And, and the uh, graphics are, you know, that creative writing. And uh, it's all put in there as well. It's very captivating. But again, like all good things, our hour is almost up. So again, we want to say our arrivederci and alla prossima. And we want to thank you all for listening. As a reminder, if you want to come on the show, if you have a success story, if you want to talk about your journey, your family's journey from Italy, you know, to the U.S., you want to sponsor an episode, please just send us an email at theitalianradiohour at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Viviana, before we leave, who is our guest next week? Well, next week we're going to be in Rome with Lindsay Gabbard from Rimesa Roscioli. And it's going to be a very unique, it will be a conversation, a very unique way of experiencing food and wine in Rome. Maybe I should have kept the trivia um, about the botte uh, with her. And I would like to remind um, to all our friends and family who might want to listen to the episode or share it with others to go onto the Istituto Mondo Italiano website and click on the tab Italian Radio Hour. They will find all the episodes. I would like to uh, thank again our guests Justine Mestichelli and Joe Medeiros, our sponsor Istituto Mondo Italiano, Poi Luci Plumbing and Alla Boara for the music. And finally, before we leave, uh, our next trivia is what does someone imply if they say Non è farina del tuo sacco. Again, what does someone imply if they say non è farina del tuo sacco? Please be the first one to answer correctly and send us an email at theitalianradiohour at gmail.com. Uh, vi ringraziamo per la risposta from last week. Again, we always enjoy reading your email, so please keep them coming. If you are not in the Pittsburgh area or you might be traveling, remember you can catch us streaming live at khbradio.com every Thursday at 5 p.m. And again, be sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook at the Italian Radio Hour. Until next time, alla prossima. Ciao, ciao. ciao. The Italian Radio Hour has been sponsored by Istituto Mondo Italiano.